this morning. Uh, I think uh, I really kind of like some of the things that we're seeing. I think some of you would say, you know, you're ready for things to get back to normal and everything. Well, for some people, things are getting back to a more normal. Uh, there are several here this morning that have been vaccinated. Thank God for the vaccine, right? And uh, they're able to be here with us today, and we're so happy to have you guys who are slowly making your way back. And uh, we're so thankful for your presence here with us today. Well, if you have the Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1. Today, we continue the series, <clears throat> The Incredible Life. And today, what I want to do is talk about an unlimited joy. In the book of Philippians, Paul not only writes about joy, but he also writes about the, uh, the demonstration of its outcome. In four chapters, he mentions the idea of joy 16 times. Now, keep in mind that Paul was not at some exclusive resort when he wrote this. He wasn't sitting around by the pool and thinking about how great life is. No, he was literally in prison when he wrote this epistle, when he wrote this letter. And so he was, it was one of those things where his circumstances and his condition did not fit what he was currently experiencing because of the joy that was in him, we know that God was doing a great work in Paul. He writes while in prison the most positive and joyful books in all of the Bible. Matter of fact, if you were to say, okay, give me the theme of the letter to the church at Philippians, it's joy, it's rejoice. And he writes it there in the midst of, of imprisonment. Now, how did he do that? How does that happen? I think many times when you think of imprisonment, you think of many things, but back in that day, that was not a joyful experience. We would never characterize that as a joyful experience, but yet he continues to beat the drum of rejoice and joy, rejoice and joy. How does that happen? Well, look at the introduction on your outline. The incredible life begins with God's unimaginable love towards us. And as we said last week, it's a love that pursues and is passionate. Our response to this love conceives the incredible life. It's our response to the fact that he came to us, and yet while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us and provided us a way of salvation. That conceives the incredible life God has for us. And it comes with an unlimited joy that can be cultivated in us. Now, I use the word cultivate because I think it's very important for us to understand that joy is not just something that happens upon us. It is something that we cultivate in our lives. It won't just show up. It's something in which we have put the labor in. We put the work in. And that's really when you think about it, that's where that joy comes from. Let me give you an illustration. Look at the definition of cultivate. It means to promote or improve the growth by labor and, and attention. Cultivation, if you think about it, is the process of preparing the soil, planting the seed, nurturing the seed. And these are our parts in this. Then God provides the product, the outcome. So when we look at this whole idea of joy, it is something that is cultivated. It's something that comes about because there's been things that have been intentionally thought of, consumed, or, 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 or experienced in which we see the perspective that God has for our lives. 
So literally, the heart or the soul must be prepared. The seeds of God's love must be planted. Then we nurture the seeds of God's love before there is anything resembling the fruit of joy. Matter of fact, when you go and study the fruit of the Spirit, we understand that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then what do we have? Joy, peace, long-suffering, and it goes on. Some people have literally said this about this list of nine of the fruits of the Spirit in which they say that one produces the next. And I happen to know that love does produce the other eight. I mean, if you think about it, that must be in place. But think of this. Love produces joy, then joy produces peace. And you can continue down the line as it relates to the fruit. So we know that if we're going to live out the fruit of the Spirit, And it all begins with love, which I believe is that love that pursues us, that's passionate for us, and which God has for us. Then from that can come the joy. It produces the joy. So look at the biblical definition of joy. It's the unshakable assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything will be all right. And the determined purpose to praise God in all things. Joy is cultivated through the means of God's love and our response to God's love, which is by faith and trust. And we trust him with our lives. Life without joy, and we, we maybe have gone through this this past year, but life without joy is overwhelming and even oppressive. Studies have shown that the more joy we have in our lives, the more productive, creative, and energetic we become. Think about what we've just gone through and what many of us are going through now. And we we can see the feelings of being overwhelmed. We can feel the oppression that comes our way. But guess what? In the midst of it all, joy can still be what God wants to consume and conceive in our hearts. So in the book of Philippians, Paul gives us six ways to cultivate joy. Six ways to, in which we can invest in proper ways to, to build the joy that can be in our lives. And by the way, I think that needs to be intentional. And so here it is. Six ways to cultivate joy. Number one, invest in the lives of others. We have to learn to think outside ourselves. We've got to look at other people. Listen, Paul was joyful because he was unselfish. Paul was joyful because he invested in others. He shared his life with others. There's many of you in this room who who do that. Some of you do it in a very intentional way here on Sunday morning. Some of you are what we call connect leaders. And we appreciate those who are willing to invest in others and to pour into other people's lives uh, what needs to be poured in. And then the fact that we come together, not just in this group, but in these smaller groups in which we can share our lives with one another and build into one another. That's what it's all about. And Paul was on to something when he says joy is linked to the investment that we have in others. He literally talks about a bond that we have with those that we invest in. So look at Philippians chapter 1 verse 3. Look at how he addresses this church. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all. How? With joy. 
for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it's right for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart. Listen to this terminology. He's made an investment in them. Obviously, they've made some sort of investment in, in him. We're going to find out about that later. But he's saying, what he's saying here is that there's a bond. He's speaking of a bond here. Inasmuch as both in my chains, he's talking about the fact that he can't be with them, he's imprisoned. In my chains and in the defense of confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment, that you may prove the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What we're reading there is this bond. We're reading about Paul's investment into this church. And he's not just talking about the church itself. He's very personal in talking about those who make up the church. See, back then, the churches weren't large. They weren't, they were, many of them were small. And, he, and, and I happen to believe that as he's writing this letter, the faces of those in that church came to his mind. Therefore, if you desire to have continuous joy in your life, here's the secret. Give your life away. Give your life away in helping and serving others. Well, you see, and here's all our problems. We need to stop focusing on our problems, our desires, and our inconveniences and start focusing on helping and investing in others. It's literally the idea of becoming other-centered. Jesus said this, the more you give away your life, the more you'll find it. The more you'll find it. He's saying you'll come to more of a realization of who you are when you invest and you give your life away. You see, Joy is cultivated in us when we invest in others. Some of you may be sitting here today, and I've got a similar story. You may say, you know, I, I attempted to invest in someone, and I, I got hurt. To be honest with you, I don't know that I want to do that again. I got burnt one too, one too many times. And, and let me just say this. I, I, I get that. I understand that. Anytime you put yourself out there, you stand a chance of getting burnt. You stand a chance of bringing hurt into your life. But guess what? We still are called to make the investment. We're still called to reach beyond that hurt. We're still called to forgive that person and continue the path God's called us to. I, I, I mean, literally, I remember a time in my life where I got burnt, and it just shut down so many areas of my life. There, I mean, and this wasn't just a small period of time. This was over a period of several years. And it does hurt, and it does bring all these feelings of not wanting to go there again. But listen, if we ever want the joy that is sp spoken upon in God's Word, we got to put ourselves out there once again. we got to come to that point of forgiveness and, and be there and invest in others. In this fallen world, we are taking a chance when it comes to putting ourselves out there, but it's worth it. We still need to get back out there. A second way to cultivate joy in your life is to yield to the purposes of God. You see, another joy killer 
is really having no perceived purpose in life. And I've talked to you about this many times, but I'm convinced that most of us in this room are really just kind of drifting through life. Where are we? It's on autopilot. We just respond to circumstances. We just respond to the demands that are placed on our lives. We go here. We go there. We just kind of do as the world dictates. And, and, And for many of us, we may seem that that's okay. But I'm here to tell you there's not a whole lot of joy in that life. You see, when it comes to this life we're talking about, drifting in life, you need to understand where you came from, where you're going, why you're here. Then you're not going to have any joy in your life if you don't look at those things. You got to realize there's purpose. There's something God wants to do. You know, it's not about cruising on autopilot because listen, everything I know about the life I've lived so far, my joy is not found in those things. It's that determined purpose to know what he has for me, for you. What does he want you to do? So for some of you, it's obvious what he wants you to do. He's already placed people in your life for you to invest in. Think about your children, your grandchildren, whomever. There are people out there that's kind of built in. And then, of course, there's those times we've got to look beyond ours and them. You see, we all need a cause greater than ourselves to which we live for. That's what brings us joy. Living for yourself will not bring joy. How many of you are living testimony to that? Bam, I, I've been there, and, and I stayed there for a while. And, and, and there was no joy found in that. The link to joy is found in the investment of others and finding the purposes of God that he has for us. And Paul realized this, realized this about life. When he was writing this letter, as we've already said, Paul, really, when you think about it, he lost everything. The only thing he had was the investments that he made in other people. The only thing he had was the fact that he had the fulfillment and the joy of knowing that he was still, even in his imprisonment, fulfilling the purposes of God through his life. Think about that. We're reading today what he wrote 2,000 years ago in a prison cell. And the thing that we can take from this is the fact that Paul remained obedient and joyful and continued to put himself out there, even when hurt in this fallen world and persecution were all around him. You see, Paul's purpose and joy, and here's what we got to get our minds around, came from two different worlds, two different realities. And yet he was constantly aware of those two worlds. I want you to look at chapter one again. Look at verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. What I'm going through will turn out for my deliverance. Through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether I live or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do you know what he's saying here? He's basically saying in the context of joy, for me to die, there's a joy there. For me to live, there's a joy there. Why? Because he knew he lived in two different worlds. And he's getting ready to tell us how much he longs for that world to come. Look what he says, verse 22. But if I live on in the flesh, 
This will mean fruit for my labor, yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, the two worlds, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. I mean, think about it. He was probably right in that. Think of all the things this man's been through. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. My constant investment in you is important too. And I'm hard-pressed. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all in your progress and your joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. He's looking to those days. If he remains here in this fallen world, he has joy. Why does he have joy? Because he's all about the investment in others and the purposes God has for him. If God chooses him to die while they're in prison and it leads to his uh, execution, which at some point it will later, then he's ready for that too. His joy will be complete at that point. He'll be with Christ. I mean, think about it. Everything that could possibly happen to him, the end result would be joy because of the way he cultivated it in his life. He cultivated already, it was already built in. So if you want to cultivate joy in your life, you need to get in line with God's purposes for your life. Think about what are the purposes? What is he up to? I can tell you this. It's not about drifting through life. It's about intentionally, purposefully responding to the love that he has for us. How do we do that? Through the joy of investing in others and fulfilling the purposes he has for us. A third way to cultivate joy in your life is for some of us, we need to put the past behind us. Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 3 that if you want to enjoy life, if you want joy, there are some things that you've got to get rid of. Those things that are wearing you down, those things that are holding you back, those things that are hindering you. And if, I were to, if you were to be completely honest with me this morning, you could probably tell me where those things are in your life that are hindering you from experiencing the true joy God has for you. What is keeping you from experience joy in your life? What is it? King David. King David uh, was a man who I, I believe understood what it meant to have joy in Christ or joy in God. I mean, uh, the Psalms he wrote, were, there was an obvious link to the joy he had for living for, Christ, for, for God at that point. And he just, he loved the fact, he, he loved the salvation that God brought to his life. He, he loved the fact that God was using him. And we see that in the Psalms. And then there came a point in his life where he let something come in to steal his joy. In his case, it was sin that he let into his life. I want you to listen to his greatest plea that we find in one of the Psalms. Here's what it says. Lord, restore the joy of my salvation. Lord, bring back everything that means most to me, that, that joy that I once had in, in that salvation of you. And, and I want you to think about it. This man had gone through a lot. There were times where he was a victim of King Saul, but there were also times in which he, he was a victim of himself and of sin. And you know the story. But what did he long for more than anything? He wanted the joy that he felt in the salvation of God. He wanted that joy back. And it sounds like he wanted it back more than anything. You see, I'm convinced that those who've ever experienced the joy of God in their life, if it's ever gone, they long for it to come back. 
I remember through those days of, of, of being hurt. And, 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 you know, listen, we're all capable of hurting and being hurt, aren't we? I've hurt people, I know. I've had to go back, make things right. I've had people hurt me. Sometimes they've made it right, sometimes they haven't. But the point is this. I know that at that point in which I can't let it go, at the point in which I'm letting that take main stage in me, the bitterness and the hostility and the unforgiveness I feel in my heart, it takes away that joy. The two can't coexist. And for some of you, listen, for some of you, you've been there too long. It's time to come away from that. And just like David, cry out to God and say, Lord, restore the joy of your salvation in my heart. So what do we need to put behind us? First of all, we need to put regrets. I just want to ask you a question. Uh, how many of you have at least more than one regret in your life? I mean, how, how many of you, how many of you, and maybe it's the age I am, how many of you want to get to the end of life with the least amount of regrets? Have you ever thought about that? When I finally come to the end, if I have a deathbed experience or whatever, what will be my regrets? And, and I'm not sure what time of life that kind of, I didn't think of these things in my 20s and 30s. And I really don't think I thought of it in my 40s. But boy, when I got a little bit older and I realized I started looking at the time clock. Any of y'all look at the time clock when you're getting older? You start to realize, you know, what, what will be those things that I regret? How many of you already have those regrets? I mean, sometimes they're already present with us. But regrets, listen, how many of you are glad that God's mercies are, de- are new every day? That's right. Yeah, we, the next morning we wake up, there's, there's a new set of mercy. I mean, listen, we live, in, we live in grace. And yet we can be our worst enemy. We can beat ourselves up. We can do that. And, and listen, maybe there's times we need to build our, uh, uh, beat ourselves up until we make it right. There, there's conviction that should be in our life when we make a mess of things. There should be guilt. There should be shame. That should be there until we make it right and we've done everything that we know to make it right, to put it back at his feet, to realize it's been forgiven, and to move on. I shared this story with you once before. Sir Arthur, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes series, decided to play a prank on some of the most, very, most important people in London, England. As he sent an anonymous note to eight prominent men there that read, all is found out, flee at once. He just wanted to see what would happen. He had no clue about anything. Within 24 hours, all eight men left the country. That's crazy, isn't it? There was something there. I'm convinced based on that story and what I know about myself, for every one of us, there's something there. There's something there that we just can't get past, that we can't forgive ourselves for, that we think God is not capable of forgiving ourselves for. Think about it. Look at what he says in chapter 3. Look at verse 6. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. What he was basically saying in in verse 6 of chapter 3, you do know that he had many followers of Jesus killed, right? before his conversion. Can you imagine living with that every day? Knowing what he knew now, that Jesus was a true and living God, and he put down people. He was responsible for the death of those who followed the same Lord that he now follows. 
How do you wake up every every day knowing about that? How do you deal with that? And Paul is obviously still remembers it, but, but he's put it behind him. He's put it behind. He was able to take one of the worst regrets any human being I think could ever have, persecuting and killing followers of Jesus. He was able to put it down, but he still remembered it, but it didn't paralyze him to the point that he couldn't still invest in others and fulfill the purposes of God through his life. And guess what? In spite of all that, listen, he still had joy. How do you come back from something like that? Yet Paul did. Skip down to verse 13. He says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I'm not there yet by any means. But one thing I do, this is one thing that he's he's writing this in such a way that he's saying, this is how I have survived certain things. This is what he's saying. I do do not count myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do, and this is what allows him to continue to do what he's doing, forgetting those things which are behind Forgetting those things. They no longer, he's saying they no longer had power over him. They no longer determined where, whether he would wake up in the morning and have joy or not. They no longer affected him. Now, how many of you, if you were some of the family members of those that he had put down, wanted him to deal with it every day of his life? How many of you would have been there? Yeah, I hope you feel it. I mean, can you imagine hearing this man be converted to Christ and all of a sudden now he's out here doing what he's doing and he, the, the victims of those who, the ones who love those victims. Are, can you imagine all that? Y'all, this was a great work of God that happened in this man's life. It was a true conversion. And even in the midst of it all, he was able to say, he has joy. Here, here's one thing that fits what Paul experienced. And what he, God invites us to experience, or Jesus, listen to this. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Blotted out. Do you, do you get it? Do you get blotted out? How many of you remember the old-timey iPads? You remember those, uh, those sketch things in the 70s? <laughs> you, you remember those? those? Those were the first iPads, weren't they? You remember those? Some of you were looking, no, don't remember that. <laughs> Go back, it's back there, okay? And, and you can do a line, you do that. I never could create what they say you're capable of creating in that. But anyway, how many of you remember what you did when you no longer wanted to see the image? You shook it. It's the same idea, blot it out. No matter how big of a mess we may have made on that screen, no matter what it looked like, no, we could still shake it out. That's the same picture that we have here. He will blot it out. It's no longer before us is really what it's saying. Why would you want to do that? So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that those mercies may be experienced new every day, that the grace that he has for us is out there, that the forgiveness that that we so desire is really available. Paul's saying, and let me just say this. What I know about myself, what I think I know about the Apostle Paul, persecuting the church was a big thing he had to overcome based on his passion for it. And yet this man is still able to say he has joy in his heart. He has joy. And he's convincing us that joy can be a part of our lives. So the regrets, another thing in our past that can steal our joy 
Some of you may be shocked by this, but our, our rewards, resting on past victories. How many of you have noticed that as the older you get, the more you talk about what you used to do than you do now? Yeah. I mean, in my mind, I like to play golf. I've always stunk at golf, but I like to get, it gets me outside. You know, I got friends in here that play once every four months, and they come back and beat me every time. It hurts my feelings and all that. But in my mind, I used to hit 300-yard drives, which is a long ways for most people. In my mind, I, I was a much better player. I mean, in my mind, how many of you in your mind back there, it seems so much better? At least we tell our kids that, right? And then there's times when we tell them how hard it was going to school uphill both ways in the snow, right? In Florida, right? I mean, I mean, we've got all these things that we look back on and we really hardly ever see those things real. You know what I'm talking about. But some of us, we feel like we've done all we're going to do. For some of us, it may be maybe we have more limitations than we used to. Guess what? God can overcome any limitation. He, matter of fact, in our weakness, he's what? Strong. But let me tell you on the other side of it, too. Some of us take this idea of retirement into our faith. We've never been told to retire when it came to our faith and serving the purposes of God through our lives. We've never been called to that. We don't retire from that. And the thing that we need to realize is that, that God wants to continue to do the great things in our lives. Even when we think we've done enough, we probably have not. You know why I know that? Because we're still breathing. We're still breathing. Look at verse 7. But what things were gained to me, I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of, no, of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why? That I may gain Christ. You know what he's talking about here? I've, I've known this verse probably most all my life, but one thing that I've noticed here, he's talking about the pursuit of Christ through experience. And he's talking about the more knowledge that he has of him, the more knowledge he has of the intimacy Christ desires in us and through us. And the more he moves in that direction, those things that were back there, the rubbish, the regrets, even the rewards and those things we thought we were doing it were so good. He's saying, oh, that's really a bunch of junk. I would tell you what he really means by it, but you'd be offended. But the thing he's saying here is, I, would, I don't get any. Listen, today is the day that he's working in and through me. Today is the day that, that I'm still seeing him do great things. In verse 9, and being found in him, not having my own righteousness, by the way, that was a big deal for Paul, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. The very thing that he, in his life before Christ, that he pursued most is that he would be made right before God, and he wanted to do it on his own terms. That was his goal in life. Go back and look at his, story, at his testimony. But he said, now that I'm over here and I realize that mercies are new every day and I would never be able to be made acceptable for God unless it were for Christ, I'm living over here now. And I'm experiencing more over here than I ever experienced pursuing him the way I used to pursue him because I'm pursuing him the way he desires me to pursue him, through Jesus Christ. And that's where my joy is. And that's what he's telling us here. Skip down to verse 13. 
We've already read the beginning of that. Brother, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I'm not, I'm not there yet. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, but it doesn't stop there. What does it say next? And reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Let, let me tell you, he's looking forward with ambition. He's looking forward with intention out. He's looking forward with, a, with optimism. And it doesn't mean that every circumstance is going to be great because we know about Paul's life. Every time he turned around, he was dealing with a new challenge in his life. Persecution or being shipwrecked or people out for his life where he eventually will be executed. But he couldn't wait to see what God was going to do next. You ever met anybody like that? I've had the privilege to meet a couple that just, whatever God has, whatever God has, sometimes they're saying it right there in the face of danger. And I tell you, man, there's a respect when that, for that. Listen to Isaiah 43. This is Isaiah talking, or God really talking through Isaiah to the nation of Israel. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. I love this part. You need to see that I am doing a new thing. I'm going to do a new work. He desires that not just for the nation of Israel. He desires that for all those who have faith in him. The starting point of joy, listen, is to let go of the past, the regrets and the rewards, and look to a new day and a new work and a new avenue for joy to come into your life. Another way to cultivate joy in your life is trust God with the future. Trust God with the future. How many of you are having a hard time with that one right now? If you're to say so far, I can say that I have invested in other people's lives. And you're right. There is something to that. And I've tried to be obedient to his purposes. And I've forgotten the past. I've realized I come to the conclusion that his mercies are new every day. But boy, when you say trust him with the future, that's a toughie. That's a toughie. So I want you to think about this. Some of you are worried about tomorrow. Some of you are fearful about tomorrow. You cannot be joyful and fearful and worried at the same time. Worry and fear only makes things worse. How many of you have lived long enough to know that? You've lived long enough to realize that, okay? The more you worry, the more you're fearful about something, the bigger it becomes in your mind and your heart. And it plagues everything. It, it stops up everything. Every avenue, I'm convinced, every ag avenue that God wants to work in your life can be halted with worry, fear, and doubt. It can stop right there. We've got to reach beyond that. So worry, fear, doubt, they're as useless as regret. So what do we do? Well, we trust God daily. We've got to trust him daily. For some of us, we're looking too far out there. Today is today. Today is the day he will reveal himself. Today is the day that we can have this joy he talks about. Today is the day that that mercy is present for us. He's constantly talking about today. So trust God daily. Look at verse 13, the last part. And reaching forward to those things which are ahead, verse 14, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is a person reaching forward toward the prize. And a person is reaching forward toward something, knowing there's something that lies out there for them that will bring that joy, is not worrying about something. They're not fearful about something. They're going for it. They're living 
courageously. You know, that's one thing that I've learned about joy. It takes great courage to truly experience the joy of Christ in our lives. It takes courage. You got to reach beyond worry. You got to reach beyond fear. You got to reach beyond those things that apprehend us and hold us back. You got to reach beyond those things to see the joy of the Lord. But for many of us, the enemy has just got in there and he is just wreaking havoc. And he has been for some time now. And the thing that we need to realize is that's not God's best for us. He wants us to experience joy. He wants us to have that. He wants us to daily trust him. Let me just say this. If you're worrying and you're fearful, you're going to be offended by what I'm about to say. But if you're worried, if your life right now is worry and plagued with fear and there's doubt all over the place, can I just tell you what you're not doing? It's tough on me to say this too because I, it reflects back. You're not trusting, you're not living by faith, and you're definitely not praying. The reason I can say that so boldly is because I've been there. You need to trust God with your eternity, not just daily, but your eternity. Our salvation has three parts when you look at it. There's three big words. There's something called justification, which is the past. That's where our salvation began. There's sanctification. That's where we are in the process of being set apart for the purposes of God. And we're moving in that process. That's where we are right now. And then in the future, there's something called glorification. That's the part you really want to get to, okay? Maybe some of you don't want to get there today, but you want to get there at some point, okay? Because death requires that unless there's, the Lord comes back, okay? That is our future reality. What does Paul say about that? And again, you're, here's what I do when I look at Philippians. He's telling me that God intends for joy to be in my life. That that's how I should be characterized as someone who is joyful, who is rejoicing. That's what he tells me. So now what I did is I went through the book and I went through and I looked for the passages that demonstrated what that was or that helped Paul get to that mindset. And this is what I found. Look at verse 20 of chapter 3. Here, here's how he comes to that mindset. For our citizenship is in heaven. For those of us who truly know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we're followers of Jesus Christ. We've, we come to him on his terms. Our citizenship is not in the USA. Or at least solely. We have a dual citizenship. And it begins with heaven. Heaven. I just happen to live in the U.S., but my home is heaven. That's my true citizenship. That's what he says. And he says, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting on him. That, that, that's out there. And, and that's the reason I think Paul, when he's in prison, can still have joy. That's the reason when Paul says, yeah, yeah the, concerning the church, I persecuted the church. I, I literally had people killed. That's the reason he can still live with himself is because he knows he's been forgiven. But not only that, there's something that's still to come. Maybe in the back of his mind, he's sitting there thinking, and those people I had killed, they'll be in heaven. How many of you be wanting to look up Paul at that point? Hey, Paul, what was that all about, bud? <laughs> but, but think about this. Think about how this thing's expanding. He, he began to look at the end game. He began to look at the end, the end picture. And for a lot of us to, to step through our, our fears and our doubt and all these things that are keeping us from trusting him and our faith, sometimes we need the bigger picture look that heaven is our home. It awaits us. 
When we embrace the salvation Christ provides, then we become citizens of a new country. Our name, according to the Bible, is recorded as a citizen of this new country in the Lamb's Book of Life. Therefore, we as Christians, even though we are not at home in heaven, we're still partly here on earth. Jesus was talking to the disciples one day. And they're gathered around. He began to tell about his departure. He was literally telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to leave the world. I'm, I'm going to be out of here. It's going to be on you at that point. How do you think they felt? Well, evidently they felt fearful because this is what Jesus told them after that. He said, let your heart not be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He said, hey, by the way, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I wouldn't be here telling you about it. But there, there's something to come. So in the midst of their fear, in the, in the midst of their doubt, in the midst of they, what did Jesus do? He turned their minds and their hearts towards heaven. He literally said, if you're having a hard time right here, and you will have a hard time, and they will persecute you, and there's a good chance you're not going to get out of here alive, They're, they'll take your life. Guess what? There's something on the other side. Jesus himself, his go-to to help people have joy in this world through the midst of trouble was to think about heaven. That's what he does here. Think about heaven. My father's house are many, many mansions. If, I were not, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. There's something out there that I have for you. And if I go and repair a place for you, I'm going to come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, you're going to be also. We're going to be together once again. So whatever this life throws at you, there's something on the other side. That's where your joy is. Another promise surrounding our joy are our bodies need updating. How many of you are fully aware of that? The software term would be body 2.0. Some of you may think you're on the third or fourth version, but uh, the Bible 2.0. The bodies we have now are only for temporary use. Amen? Amen. We will need new bodies for our eternal home. How many of you are glad you don't have to live in this for the rest of your life, your eternal life? They're out of here. Look what he says in verse 21. Again, think about what is he trying to promote? He's trying to promote joy in people's hearts. He's trying to say this is how you keep this in your forefront. Verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body. Lowly body, what does that mean? Limitations, frailties, whatever you want to call it. It's all right there. Uh, he'll transform our lowly bodies that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. The last part basically says this. It's nothing for him to do this. To take the old body and create a new body, a glorified body. It's nothing for him to do that. That's what the last part really means. So this will happen in one of two ways. Those who are, who are living when he returns, based on what we think we know in Scripture, will be glorified at that moment. Those who have passed before he comes will receive their new bodies when they see him face to face. A body that is mortal, corrupt, diseased, and weak will be traded in for a body that's immortal, incorrupt, disease-free, and strong, no longer capable of suffering pain or death. That's the good news. What's Paul, what's Paul trying to promote in this letter? You can have joy. You can have joy. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can trust him with your future. Warren Wearsby uh, has written many books. Uh, and in his book, Be Joyful, 
He says that the reason Paul could have joy in this dark situation was because of his confidence, his confidence was in sovereign God, which means a sovereign God, when he speaks, it's going to happen. Okay, and that's the reason he says that. And his assurance of heaven. Now think about this. Heaven is a real place that really exists based on the sovereignty of God. A real destination for those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So heaven, let me tell you how great it is, is so wonderful that Paul describes it this way. 1 Corinthians 2, 9. For eye has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. There's really not a great explanation for any of it in human terms. It's going to literally blow your mind. That's really the language here. Blow your mind. This verse tells us that there are things that await the person who knows Jesus as their Lord and Savior that are glorious and mysterious. I'll ask the band to come up if they will at this time to prepare for our concluding song. But next week I'll pick up on the last two. I got a lot to say about those last two. But as we finish up this morning, here's what I want to leave you. Our ability to cultivate joy in our lives, listen, begins with a love that is passionate and is pursuing. A love that can only come from God. Do you get that? That love must be experienced. That love has to be a part of who we are, that we've received that love, that we've turned from our old ways and our sin and we've turned to him and we've received the love that is pursuing and passionate for us. And then at that point, it is possible to cultivate things in our life that are unimaginable, that are unlimited in scope, and one of those things that we're told right here in the book of Philippians is that joy can be cultivated. It's not just something that springs out of nowhere. According to what we read, it's got to be cultivated. It's something that we're building into our lives through our faith, through our trust, through just trusting sovereign God that he'll do what he says he's going to do. And through the experiences that we can have, that his mercies are new every day. So, so far, here's where we are. How do we cultivate this thing, this unlimited joy in our life that covers every imaginable way, the inconveniences, the persecution, the sorrows? How do we cultivate it? Here's, here's what Paul tells us. Invest in others, yield to the purposes of God, put the past behind us, trust God with our future. And we'll pick up with the other two next. But right now, I just want to ask you, if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes. And I just want you to contemplate, y'all. I, I feel like for many of us, 2020 was so defeating in so many ways, just as these first couple months of 2021. But they don't have to be. There can still be joy in the worst of circumstance. And I want that for you. Paul obviously wants this for you. God sent his son to make it possible for you. Father, we just come to you right now. And Lord, I, I, I know there's so many hearts in this room that are, that are here that I think we all want joy. It's just for most of us, we, we kind of we don't know where it begins. We, we, we think it's just something that will happen. Father, help us to realize that we've got to cultivate this thing. 
this is something, this is a partnership with you that, yes, you do conceive the seed in us of love. And, and from that love can come joy and peace and all those other things. But right now, we, we're, we're not nurturing the seeds of your love. We're not falling in line with your purposes. We're, 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 we're totally dismayed with the things that are going on around us. Our, our faith has lost hope. Father, we just praise David that the joy of our salvation may return. Father, for some of us in this room, the reason we have no joy is there is some sin sitting there. It's been there for some time now. Help us to turn from that. Lord, I just pray for repentance to take place in the lives that that represents. For others, they've been hurt. They've been hurt badly. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, you'll help them to, to get beyond that point towards forgiveness and father for those of us maybe we just don't know how maybe today for the first time we're starting to see some hope that some joy can come to our lives that literally we've just pulled things right out of your word today father that can bring that i pray we'll commit ourselves to that that we'll nurture that father i just know that you can do great things in our lives if we'll just surrender to you and your word lord we thank you for what you're capable of doing in jesus name Amen.